Before we read, um, let's pray as we open God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that it contains. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us through your word. We just ask that you would make our hearts open and that you would teach us today. Lord, we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be reading from chapter 3 from the New American Standard Version. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, And I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world and to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, in order that you, that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. And he who, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, 
I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be here today. It's good to be before the Word this morning. Amen? I hope this week was a profitable week for you in your own time before the Word. We are making our way through these letters to the churches written by Christ. We're number five of seven today, looking at the church at Sardis. You know, as I was reading and studying this week, this particular passage, there were two words that, that came to my, my mind and, and, and felt like maybe right out of the gate it'd be helpful to, to look at these two words because I, I believe in, in some ways these are two words not only that uh, were very significant in the life of those at Sardis, but I believe even here in the church at Hope in Christ, these two words also become very important. In the church as a whole, these two words become very important. And they are, I believe, vital for the church today to get a handle on what these terms are. Sometimes defining terms is helpful. And so the two terms that I'd like to just put forward this morning, the first one is integrity. These are not foreign words. You know both of these words. You've heard these words. And and just using uh, 1828 Webster... I found was helpful here in giving some handle. Integrity, moral soundness or purity. Incorruptness, uprightness, honesty. Integrity comprehends the whole moral character. So as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about this integrity and how it's manifested when the outward conduct and the inward parts work in tandem. They work together. And they take delight in walking together for the purpose of shining a light toward Christ, the very one who has made them whole through the blood of Jesus. And then I was thinking about the word hypocrite. And Webster gives us One who feigns to be what he is not. One who has the form of godliness without the power. By the way, that's reference 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 5. I especially like it when the terms are defined by scripture. Or who assumes an appearance of piety and virtue when he is destitute of true religion. Listen to that again. One who assumes, a hypocrite, one who assumes an appearance of piety and virtue when he is destitute of true religion. That word hypocrite, you probably know some of the background there, originally used in the theater, right? One who was an actor, one who donned the mask to play a particular role. And here we see the outward conduct not lining up with the inward parts working against one another 
And here's the thing we need to understand. If you do not have Jesus Christ in your life, it will never do to compensate by just adding a pleasant exterior. It won't do. It won't truly satisfy. Proverbs 11, verse 3. says, The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Or how about Proverbs 11, verse 9. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. But through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. Or Proverbs eleven eighteen through 20. Listen to these. The wicked man does deceptive work, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. As righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. Those who are of a perverse heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their ways are his delight. I was also thinking about our scripture for this month, Galatians 6, 7, and 8. It says, God, it says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You see, you might be able to fool man. But the Bible is pretty clear on this one. And we've already shared prior to this in some of the other letters that Hebrews 4.13, nothing in creation is hidden. He sees all things. All things are laid open and bare before the one to whom we must give account. He sees. He knows. And the message to the church at Sardis deals pointedly with this issue. You see, integrity, character, uprightness, blamelessness, righteousness, these, these things seemingly were absent to a large degree from the church at Sardis. You know, I wonder how the church at Sardis received this letter. I was thinking about that. It's six verses, what we have. And it's predominantly, church, a rebuke and a warning. That's what it is. There is an insert of hope, praise the Lord, for those who have not yet soiled their garments, verse 4. I mean, imagine hearing this letter read. Can you imagine, you know, especially if you were privy to the other letters... I mean, I can imagine someone sitting there hearing the letter. Hey, Lord, where's the commendation? <laughs> you said some really nice things about some of these other churches. You didn't follow that same pattern. We, we can't be that bad, can we? When Christ has no word of commend uh, commendation... And that seems to be a pattern throughout here that there is some word of commendation. When 
Christ has no word of commendation for His church. The church had better sit up and take notice. See, this is, this is a sharp message from Christ. This is not a warm, fuzzy message that we're dealing with here. Because it's not a warm, fuzzy message, I'm not going to make it out to be such. Rebuke is profitable, church. Remember that as you read these verses. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says the word of God is profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, or rebuke, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Right? So what we need to do as a church here as we're reading today, as, as we allow the Holy Spirit to teach us from His word... We need to, with word open before us, perhaps ask some questions, even as we begin. Are you willing to take God at, at, at His word? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to submit yourself to what God says? You see, when, when what He says and what you're doing don't seem to match up, what's your response? Are you rationalizing your behavior? Do you tend to offer God excuses for your disobedience? Is the word for you simply profitable for the doctrine which you hold? I got to thinking about this. You know, some here perhaps might be so focused on the profitability of doctrine, on getting the right doctrine, upholding the right doctrine, standing on the right doctrine, which, by the way, we need to make sure we're standing on right doctrine. But if that is all we're doing, church, there are three other things there in that passage in 2 Timothy. This word is profitable, yes, for doctrine. But it's profitable as well for rebuke and correction and instruction in righteousness. I hope that as we read this, we've not dismissed God's rebuke and called it unnecessary in light of the fact that we're so focused and so laser focused, the beam is so, so much shining brightly over here on the profitability of doctrine that we lose sight of the fact he's rebuking and we don't, even, we don't want anything to do it. We just want right doctrine. Yes, we want right doctrine, but we also want to embrace all of what the Word says. That's so important. How might he desire to correct you? Just some questions to think through here at the beginning. Are, are you deemed a man or woman of integrity? Is your outward conduct and inward heart on the same page? Are you more concerned about your reputation among men or your reputation before God? 
Is it more important for you to seek applause from men or to seek the approval of Christ? Have you been focused exclusively on tending the outside appearance? Just doing a patchwork job, if you will. Making myself look good without tending to matters of the heart before God. Well, the recipient pattern of this letter is, is much the same, minus the commendation. So the recipient of this letter we see here in verse 1. Follow along in the text, please. And to the angel of the church at Sardis, write. Sardis on the map, located 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. We started in Ephesus and we went north, and we went north, and now we're going southeast last week, and we're continuing to go southeast, and now we're at a point where if we look at Smyrna, we're about 50 miles due east. Okay, today looking at Sardis. You know, as I was thinking about Sardis, I, I, I believe it shares in some way a common thread with the state of Indiana. Indiana is known as the crossroads of America, right? You see the interstates, and uh, from all I've been told, there's going to be one someday built from Evansville up here. I don't know if it's going to happen. It's maybe in the works, perhaps, but nevertheless, there are many roads that lead to Indianapolis, right? And as I got to thinking about that, Sardis and looking at some of the history, seemed to be a crossroads as well. You see, it was the centerpiece of five roads coming together. And looking at some of the history of the church, we see this city was an active commercial city. It was very wealthy. And the city was built on a hill. The writer says, built on a hill so steep that its defenses seemed impregnable. From history we see it was captured by Cyrus the Persian in 549 B.C. We see it was also captured by Antiochus in 218 B.C. And both times because, listen to this, because of its slackness. On both occasions in history, the enemy scaled the precipice at night and found that the overconfident Sardians, those of Sardis, had set no guard. I think history tells us a lot. It tells us a lot even with what Christ is saying to this particular church. It's interesting to see how often the history of the city is connected to the very words of Christ and, and the fact that they were set on a hill. Oh, I hope that, it, that, that that reminds you of something in Scripture. Do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. And then he says, A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. You see, this church at Sardis was literally a church set on a hill. And the purpose of being set on a hill 
is not to draw attention to oneself. This is not about getting man to look at you. Nor is it to isolate one's self from others in the world. Let's just distance ourselves from the world. See, the purpose of being on a hill is to let your light so shine before men, right? That they might see your good works, your good deeds and praise, not you, but your Father in heaven. Notice in this church, no mention of the doctrine of Balaam, which we found in Pergamos. No mention of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which we saw in Ephesus and Pergamos. No mention of the doctrine of Jezebel, which we saw in the church at Thyatira. There doesn't seem to be any outside forces at work against this church at Sardis. And the mix of membership is interesting to note here. In Pergamos and Thyatira, there seem to be just a few throwing the church into confusion. In Sardis, there are few who have not soiled their garments. It's the other way around. So what then was going on at Sardis and how did the church arrive at this point? You know, speaking to the idea of, of the, the history of the city and, and the city itself being set up on a hill and being removed perhaps from some things and, and being wealthy. And there's some, there's some different dynamics that go into this in terms of understanding Sardis and the church. One writer says the temptation for the sheltered, and he's referring there to that city on a hill being sheltered. Defense supposedly very well thought of. Impregnable forces, or so they thought. The temptation for the sheltered is always to take things easy, and they readily become slack. You see, right now, and that's so true even for you and me today, isn't it? When you have everything you need, it's one of the great challenges, one of the big warning signs that we ought to really just, it's a flashing neon sign. When things are going really well, when you've got everything you need, is it your tendency to continue to praise the Lord? Or is it your tendency to grow slack and distance yourself from the things of the Lord because you've already got everything you need? It's to the church at Sardis that Christ speaks. But before he rebukes them, how does he describe himself? Let's not skip over that because it's very important. The self-designation of Christ. He does this in each one of the letters. And he does it intentionally in each one of the letters. Even in this one, at Sardis. It says these things. It says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Flip back a page, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. If we go backwards to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, we see these words, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. You know, as we look at this self-designation of Christ in Revelation chapter 3, we see this phrase, the seven spirits of God. And church, I believe what's being spoken here is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. You might ask, why the reference to the seven spirits of God as opposed to just mentioning the Holy Spirit? It's a great question. Great question. You see, addressing this letter to the church at Sardis, the mention of the seven spirits of God might have emphasized the need for the Holy Spirit's work in this church. And see, the point may very well be to notice not only the Holy Spirit, but rather to notice the multifaceted ministry of the Holy Spirit. What do you mean? Well, Isaiah 11 too gives us the detail. Spirit of the Lord. Spirit of wisdom. And understanding. Counsel. Might. Knowledge. Fear of the Lord. And when we read in the Gospels, and especially read John 14, 15, and 16, don't you see and don't you start to realize the multifaceted ministry of the Holy Spirit? See, it's one thing to recognize the Holy Spirit and to know about the Holy Spirit. It's another thing to see all that the Holy Spirit is about. What's needed at Sardis is needed at Hope in Christ. This isn't just for the church at Sardis. What's lacking in Sardis is perhaps the very thing lacking in many churches today. The Holy Spirit. On one hand, he might have very little voice in the church. Any talk of the Holy Spirit in the church could raise some red flags, can cause a stir, can ruffle some feathers perhaps. Oh, don't talk about the Holy Spirit. You might be one of those churches. <laughs> and then there's the other side, right? The Holy Spirit can predominate just all discussion override the work of Christ, serve as the sole focus for one's worship. And you know, the Holy Spirit could, could very well be the name invoked when the operational principles of the, uh, of the church are going in a different direction. In other words, we're, we're, we're just following the leading of the Holy Spirit on this one. You see, the, the Holy Spirit, we need to understand this, the Holy Spirit will never contradict the testimony of the Scripture. Think about it. He's the co-author. And we're called in the scripture to test the spirits. Test it out. Check it out. That's why time and again, the counsel that I'd like to give to anybody and everyone, I don't want to give you my opinion. My opinion matters very little. What I want to give you is what I know to be true from the word of God. The word of God transforms people. It's living. It's active. See that the testimony aligns with the word of God. The Holy Spirit's 
multifaceted role in the life of a believer. It's not to be discounted, nor is it to hold a greater place or serve as some kind of license or some kind of ticket for certain behavior. The life of the Spirit, working within the body of Christ, is the catalyst for a church alive. Keep that in mind as you read the next sentence in the text. The Spirit brings life. And it is this kind of life called for that is lacking in Sardis. And by extension in many churches today. <laughs> the seven stars, we see the reference for that back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 20. Referring to the angels of the seven churches. Okay, so now we get to Christ's rebuke. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So instead of following up the familiar phrase, I know your works. Remember, most of the letters, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service. Uh-uh, not here. Sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? This church doesn't get a commendation. He says, I know your works. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. In other words, you are well known by men to be a church alive. You're known by men to be doing some things really well, perhaps. You have a, a reputation among men that is good. It's like... People think of Sardis. Sardis. Yeah, that, that church is doing some great things. Have you, have you seen their, their new place where they're worshiping? They have some great ministry going on there. People all there, all they're just, they all seem to be so nice. That's such a comfortable place to be in Sardis. Christ takes facade of Sardis off. Revealing to them the reality. You might come off to men as alive. Christ says, let me tell you the truth. Let me reveal to you what you really are. You're dead! You have a nice sign out front. You look like you got it all together. But you're dead. You've acquired a name in the community. But to me, as I examine how things really are, you're dead. How's this so? I was reminded of John 15. Jesus says there, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, Christ says. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. 
See, those who bear fruit for the cause of Christ abide in him. Their actions reflect a life that abides in Christ. Their behavior aligns with a heart bent on the things of God. The church at Sardis is rebuked, not because of their reputation among men, but because they are seemingly operating apart from the vine of Christ. They're declared dead as opposed to alive. See, attempting to manufacture fruit is fruitless indeed. <laughs> when you attempt to manufacture it on your own, the result is, I believe, what Christ says to this church. You're dead. The Bible says, he who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk just as Christ walked. 1 John 2.6 See, the talk and the walk are, are intended to match. Go back to our terms, integrity, hypocrite. <laughs> the fact that Sardis is declared dead says something about their current operating procedures, doesn't it? The things that they're doing are not sufficient. They're not pleasing to Christ. Think about that. If they're not pleasing to Christ... Ought there not be a heart assessment with those who make up the church? If Christ is not pleased with his church, this ought to drive the church to her knees asking God to reveal his solution to the state of deadness. And oftentimes, the solution is already provided through the word, through the indwelling spirit. For some reason or another, we tend to want to go to other places, seek out other people for solution. The Bible says His Word, in His Word in 2 Peter chapter 1, that the Spirit is given everything you need for godliness in life. If you sit here today in Christ Jesus, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb as we sing, you have the Spirit of God residing within you. And the Bible says, here's good news, the Bible says He dwells within you forever. Now on the heels of Christ's rebuke comes a call to correction here. Look at the warning, verses 2 and 3. Be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore if you will not watch I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. There are five imperatives here. Five. These are five that you probably need to write down and make note of. These are very important. Very significant. An imperative is what? You know what an imperative is? Something to do. A command. This is not an option. This is what you ought to be about doing. First one, be watchful. Be watchful. Or in some translations, maybe you have, wake up! <laughs> wake up! 
Maybe some of you this morning needed that. Wake up. Right? We've already seen the state of this church. He's declared it to be dead. You know, when you look at Matthew 24 and 25 and you see those words of Christ on three different occasions. Really, he's sharing some some parables there that in many ways are tied to being watchful, that he's coming back. Matthew 24, 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Two verses later, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 25, 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Or how about 1 Peter 5, verse 8? Here's another good reason to be watchful. Be sober, be vigilant, or be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Good reason to be watchful, huh? I also am reminded of the history of Sardis. Don't you think there's a tie in here? You see, on two different occasions from history, it seems as though they weren't very watchful. <laughs> Be watchful. In light of the fact that you are a citizen of heaven, eagerly awaiting a Savior, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Be watchful. In light of who you are, in light of your status, if you be in Christ, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 talks about how we're sojourners, we're pilgrims. We need to be watchful. We need to be watchful. And also, the second imperative is to strengthen. Strengthen the things which remain. Be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain. Now, question. How does a dead church strengthen the things which remain? How does a dead church do that? Notice the text says these things are ready to die. (laughs) The imperative here, we need to remember, is a, a command. Something that you must do. But let's not be confused, though, on what the text is saying. The text is not calling you to just do more. (laughs) If you just do more, just do more. See, I think that's a lie from the evil one. Just do more. Do more. So you've heard the expression, I'm sure. You know, if the evil one can't get you to turn from Christ, he'll just make you busy. That's an alternative for the evil one. Just make you busy. Because if you're so busy, then you won't have time over here for Christ. So the text isn't talking about doing more. Let's be clear on this. Let's not do more. Just do more and you're okay. That's not what it's saying. I believe the reality is not about doing more. But, but here it is. Doing in the strength of the Lord. 
You remember David when he went out to fight Goliath? If he'd have done all that in his own strength, he'd have been done for. He'd have been squashed. <laughs> but the battle is who? What does he say? It's the Lord's. For a dead church to strengthen the things which remain requires a call to action in Christ. A call to be watchful and a call to strengthen that which remains. And the way you do that is through the power given to you through the Holy Spirit. That strengthening is not something you manufacture. <laughs> the difference between a dead church and a live church is a church connected, connected to the strengthening influence of the Holy Spirit. Walking together in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. The imperative to strengthen that which remains is a reminder of that which sustains, that which bolsters, that which supports. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can strengthen the deadness present here in the church at Sardis and the church at large in the world today. Third imperative, remember. Remember how you received and heard. Key word here you might underline is how. Remember how. Notice the text doesn't say remember what you received and heard. Okay? I don't believe the text is putting forth here the gospel per se as if to say remember the content of what you received and heard. No, the text says remember how you received and heard. Remember how. How did you receive Christ into your life, church? Didn't that have everything to do with the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, drawing you unto Christ himself? How did you ever come about hearing? Didn't that have everything to do with a gracious and merciful God opening your ears to hear? The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And praise God, you've heard. Praise God, the spirit of God illuminated your mind, probed your heart, and accomplished his convicting work in you. And he still does this today. This is not something that happened just 2,000 years ago. This is still happening and still a work of the Holy Spirit today. That's good news, especially if you don't have the Spirit of Christ in you. Because the very thing we're talking about is the very thing that's still happening today. The Holy Spirit still does this work today. That's good news. The call here is to remember, to bear in mind how you have received and heard. Remember Galatians 3 when he says that phrase, Oh foolish Galatians with an exclamation point. Well, in that text, he says, you started out with the Spirit, and now you're trying to do things in the flesh? Wait a minute. Time out. It's important that you understand that what began in the Spirit is, is intended to continue in the Spirit. We live this life in the Spirit. 
not in the flesh. Someone is turning you astray, he says in Galatians, to another gospel which really is no gospel at all. Fourth imperative, hold fast. Hold fast. That word we used last week, it was in the text last week. The idea of keep holding on. The idea of don't let go. Don't let go, in fact, of what you remember. <laughs> keep that always before you. Hold on to Christ. Hold on to the Word. Hold on to the power, Holy Spirit, who enables you to walk in Christ Jesus. Hold on. Hold on. Don't let go. I was reminded of that phrase in thinking about the movie. Some of you have seen Courageous already. I know you have. And that opening scene. And what does he do? He holds on to that wheel. It seems to be a theme in the movie. Because later on, one of the guys that's sitting in prison tells him, he says what? Don't let go of the wheel. Hold on. Hold on. Church here at Sardis. This is the word from Christ. Hold on. Hold fast. And what's the last one? Repent. The last one is repent. It's common in these letters, this call to repent. I find it interesting the imperative here is in the aorist tense. All that means, church, simply has reference to a past event, Okay. But I bring it out because I believe it's, it's important here. That thing that you did in the past, keep on doing right now in the present. Okay? Repentance is not a one-time event. Christ is calling for the church to walk in repentance, to be about the business of repentance. You see, a dead church is in great need of ongoing repentance. Repentance of sin, we talked about, and Kevin mentioned this a few weeks ago, it's a gift of God. And it involves the heart. It's not simply saying, I'm sorry, but it is a complete hating and forsaking of the sin in your life, knowing what? That it is displeasing to God. Notice this. None, none of the five imperatives I've just mentioned from the text can be done without the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. None of them. These are not five charges to get moving, to do more. It is a wake-up call for the church to walk together by one spirit, moving where he leads. Look at verse 4. Look at his, Christ's words to the few. It's kind of what I looked at verse 4. His words to the few. <laughs> oh, by the way, just there at the end of 3, if you will not watch. Remember he's, in verse 2 he said, be watchful. If you will not watch, notice what he says. I will come upon you as a thief. And, and, and will, you will not know the hour I will come upon you. That, that idea, same idea that, that's found in his second coming, right? Let's not be confused. 
Christ's second coming is going to happen whether or not they're watchful. Okay, so we're not necessarily talking about a second coming here, but the, the, the idea, the phrasing, we can look at the second coming, what Christ says about his return, the same idea, right? Coming like a thief in the night. So church, you better be watchful, he says, or I'm going to come to you like a thief. You're not going to know. The hour you're not going to know. Remember, this Christ who's speaking is the one who walks among the lampstands. He knows everything about his church. Time and again, he's calling his church to repentance. So we look at verse 4. He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Oh, there's, there, there's lots of, uh, of wonderful things here in this verse. And I see uh, um, some, some great hope here in verse 4. There's some great hope to hold on to right here in verse 4. Okay, He's holding out hope in particular for the few. You see, we see here the declaration that this is a dead church. The majority seem to stand in the dead state. But there are a few who have not defiled their garments. And these few shall, this is future tense, okay? These few shall walk with Christ in white. What we're going to see here in verses 4 and 5, you might write down two words. You might write down clothing and you might write down name. Those are two, two words that will come into play here as you read the text. Clothing. What kind of clothing is he talking about? And what kind of name? And why, what's so significant about a name? We're going to see. These two things are very important. These few shall walk with Christ. That phrase, walk with Christ. I was reminded of Genesis 5, 24. This man named Enoch. We don't know a whole lot about Enoch. But we know he walked with God. The text says he was not for God took him. And then we also read an account in Hebrews eleven five, 5. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And was not found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken he had this testimony. Here's this testimony. I pray this is, this is that's my testimony. This is, this is what I desire. Here it is. He had this testimony. That he pleased God. That was his testimony. He pleased God. See, walking with Christ. We talk a lot about walking, what that entails. When we talk a lot about Christ. There's that word in the middle, with. Walking with Christ. Abide in the vine of Christ. Walk in him. This walking church is carried out only by the power of the Holy Spirit. He who says these things has the seven spirits of God. Let's go back to how Christ is designating himself, right? The Spirit of God. Time and again, we can keep pointing back to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. What's needed? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. The Spirit reminds you of the very words of Christ. He points you to the things of Christ. And only the Spirit of Christ does this. Walking with Christ is futile without the power of the Spirit in you. See, the natural man doesn't understand the things of Christ. Things of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, you can read that. 
See, it's a joy to walk with Christ here today in the present. Christ is speaking of what is yet to come. Think about this. They shall walk with me in white. This clothing, this in white, in victory, in purity. For they are worthy. Oh, let's be clear on this. <laughs> let's not be confused on this phrase. Not in themselves are they worthy. But by the fact that they are justified, redeemed, sanctified, cleansed, covered, washed in the blood of Jesus. That's how they're worthy. And what a joy as a child of God to know that you're worthy to receive such attire. Verse 5 kind of continues that idea. And here in verse 5 we see the call to overcome. Familiar part of the letters in these churches. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. To those who overcome, there is a reward spoken of here. There's something wonderful to look forward to. First of all, he says, they'll be clothed in white garments. And I was drawn to the next chapter in chapter 4. And looking in chapter 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in what? White robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. But then he says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. You know, when you allow context, when you look within, point you a few pages downward in, in, in Revelation chapter 20. Starting in verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And here it is, verse 15. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Jesus says to the church at Sardis, to him who overcomes, I'll not blot out his name from the book of life. Not only that, he says, I'm going to confess his name before my father and his angels. It reminds me of what Jesus himself said in the Gospels in Luke chapter 12. 8 and 9, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. 
Church, that's an incredible reward. To be clothed in that white garment. To know that your name is not going to be blotted out of that book of life. And we talked earlier in these other letters, we've talked about what it means to overcome. Some of these other letters talked about persevering, holding on until the end. And the fact that he would confess your name to his father, to his angels. Think about that. That's a wonderful thing to consider. Verse 6 leaves us with the call to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, the church at Sardis is not the only church in need of hearing what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit church is speaking to the church even yet today. Is your ear tuned in to the Spirit or to the flesh? Galatians chapter 6, right? Are, are you sowing now, even now, toward the flesh or toward the Spirit? If it is to the Spirit, of the Spirit you will reap everlasting life. But if to the flesh, of the flesh you will reap corruption. You know, you might think that it's a neat thing to be a part of the church here at Hope in Christ. And in part, I hope you do think it is a neat thing. You like perhaps a lot of things about this church. Having a good name is not what we're after primarily. A good name among men, that is. I hope that this body is about, first and foremost, the approval of Christ. I hope that this body is about walking with Christ through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. I hope this church remembers how it received and heard. I hope this church is called this morning to strengthen the things which remain and to do that strengthening by the Spirit. Not in your flesh. I hope this church is watchful in the Spirit. I pray it holds fast to Christ and remains faithful to the end. And I pray that this church is habitual in its repentance, desiring to purify itself for the time when Christ shall come. The time when Christ shall come. You see, these letters are written to the churches, real churches, real situations. But in all of it, it's also pointing us to a time yet to come. And oh, what a day that will be. Right? 
hymn says, when we all see Jesus, we'll sing, shout, victory. And then I'm reminded of one other song. And it's, it's kind of an interim song. But until then, my heart will go on singing. Until then, with joy, I'll carry on. Until the day my eyes behold the city. Until the day God calls me home. So we see, we hear from the word what that's going to be. We're getting a glimpse of what's on the other side. And in the meantime, there's work yet to be done. Let's learn from what the scripture says. As Christ is writing to Sardis, this church at Sardis, may it also be instruction. May it also be rebuke to us here at Open Christ. And may we take these words and not just go, those are nice words, those are great words. But let's take those words and take that one step further from knowing what it says to obeying what it says. And let's walk in that way. Not in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, this morning... I ask that your Holy Spirit come, move mightily in this place. That your Holy Spirit would breathe life. I'm reminded of that, that text in Ezekiel 37. All that, that valley of dry bones. And how, Lord, you brought those dry bones together. And by your word you spoke. And the bones came and the flesh came upon those bones. And you declared those bones to live. You brought the life about. And what seemed like an impossibility, a valley of dry bones. And Father, we can read your word and we can see your works. See how mighty you are. See the things that you can do. and Only you can do. This morning as we read this letter to the church at Sardis. Oh Father I pray that you would awaken us. Call us out of the slumber. Move us Lord. That we might keep in step. With your Holy Spirit. That we might walk together as a church that we might desire to please you. That would be our primary aim. Father, there are going to be many in the world that are going to hate us. The Bible tells us that very thing. And Lord, I pray we would not fear man, but we would fear you and walk in your ways. That we would be watchful. That we would remember how we received and heard. Father, that we would walk by faith in the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the reminder. Thank you for the wake-up call. I pray that wake-up call would, would be one we would hear every day 
until you call us home. Thank you, Father, for the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, that your Holy Spirit dwells within us forever. Father, that is good news. Thank you for giving us everything we need for this life and the life yet to come. We praise your name and we thank you for Jesus who is our Redeemer. He's our rock. He's our refuge to whom we can run and be safe. Thank you for covering us. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen.